0: Church, are you ready for the Lord to reveal His glory through the preaching of His Word? If you would grab your copy of your, your Bibles, I hope you have one. The words will be on the screen if you don't. We're going to read our scripture text for today from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 in a sermon entitled, Risen with Christ. Ephesians 1 through 10, we'll read, we'll pray, and then I'll let you sit down and we'll begin. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not that of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Gracious Father, thank you so much for being pleased to meet with us already. Attending this meeting with power to pour out your spirit. We ask that your word that has just been read will now be preached with power. That you would bring conviction of sin and assurance of salvation. Father, that we might remember who we were. That we might better understand who we are. Lord, exalt your son Jesus Christ in such a way that our lives are completely transformed. Call people from darkness into the light. Please, Father be mighty to save this morning, we ask us in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So if you're new with us here this morning, um, we typically go line by line, verse by verse, uh, through books of the Bible. And currently, we are through a long trek in the book of 2 Samuel. And I actually thought about just continuing in our trek in 2 Samuel, but where we were was just looking at David being a bit of a dirtbag. And I thought, maybe not the best um, Easter sermon. So instead, I turned to Ephesians chapter 2. Um, have you ever heard this analogy? You may be familiar with this analogy and you may not be. It's the analogy of Jesus being in a boat and sinners are in the ocean drowning around him. And you know, Jesus throws him a rope and you just got to grab hold of the rope and then he pulls you into the boat You ever heard that one before? I've heard it a time or two, and they say, well, this is the gospel. Jesus is throwing you a rope in the gospel. If you take hold of the rope, he will pull you into the boat. That's really good news. But actually what I want to tell you here today from Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, is the gospel is actually a whole lot better news than that. It really is. In fact, I would say that that's actually a bad illustration (laughs) And I hope by the end of our time this morning, from Ephesians 2, 1-10, that you'll see that as well. The gospel is actually far greater than some of us might think. Ephesians 2 is one of my favorite texts. It's really just a simple passage to preach because it breaks down like this. We were, but God, we are. That's it. It's about that simple. We were, we were dead, we were enslaved, condemned, corrupted, but God, He made us alive with Christ. He raised us up and seated us with Him in the heavenly places, and so now we are His workmanship. That's the sermon. I did that in about 15 seconds, and now I'm going to take another 40 minutes to explain what I just said to you, okay? We start with this We were what were we that's where paul starts in ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 and that's point number 1 in your outline we were in fact i want to look at three particular things that paul says we were in the text you'll see them very clearly number 1 we were dead we were dead that's what he says isn't it it's how he kicks off ephesians chapter 2 in verse 1 where he says and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. By dead, Paul means not alive. Yes, that's what they pay me for, right? Uh, that's, that's grade A exposition. You won't find that type of work anywhere else here today. But think about it. That's what he means. He means dead. Dead how? Because the Ephesians, they were obviously alive when he wrote this. They were alive even before they heard the gospel. They were alive physically. So they were not dead as in not breathing, soul separated from the body, laying in the ground type of dead. Paul must mean something else. And if we're going to appreciate what Paul is saying here, we need to carefully define life and death according to the biblical terms. The reality is most of us only think of life and death in the physical only, but that's obviously not what Paul is saying here. He's not saying you used to. To not breathe, you used to not have a soul, or you used to be buried in the ground, but not anymore. See, physical death is merely a shadow of the real thing. What we most often refer to as death is actually just a shadow of something far worse, what we would call the second death, eternal punishment. That's a great place to begin with a Resurrection Sunday sermon, right? Bet you weren't expecting that this morning. But that's exactly where Paul was pointing to here in this passage. Listen, it's not pretty. If it's possible for you to imagine a life completely void of anything that is good, that is what the second death would be like. Real life, eternal life, is the opposite of that. It is knowing God and being known by God. It's being in right relationship with God. That is what life is all about. In fact, in John 17, verse 3, Jesus prays this to the Father. He says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In other words, real life is being in a right relationship with God, who is life in his very being. Death is the absence of that life, the absence of knowing the love and friendship of God. So, according to Paul, we were once dead like that, not knowing God. He means that our sins have caused us to be separated from that which is the source of life, that that we did not know God's love and joy towards us because instead what we were doing is actually storing up his wrath toward us. So we were physically alive, yes, but we did not know God as God and therefore we lacked the most basic fundamental feature of really being alive, to know God. And to be known by him, we were exiled, cut off, having no hope, and without God. We were all dead at one time. And friends, if you've never heard any of this before, if you had no idea that you were dead, I appeal to you to please pay very close attention to what I'm about to say. Because I promise you the best part is about to come. But before we move on to the next point, let me point something out to you. Dead people don't do anything. It's part of what it means to be dead. A corpse in the ground doesn't bemoan or complain the fact that it's there. Now I'm not talking about TV shows or movies or zombies or anything like that. I'm talking about real life. Death is the loss of that which animated the body. Separation from the principle of life that filled the body. And friends, like a physical corpse, you and I were incapable of doing anything about our predicament of being dead. You were no more able to change your situation, to cause yourself to be able to come back to life, than a corpse in a grave is able to find and reunite itself with its soul. So God, through Paul, says you were dead. But not only you were dead, I'm sorry, it actually is a little worse than that. He goes on to say, "You were dead and you were also enslaved. You were enslaved." That's what he says in verses two and three of our text. He says, "And the end of verse one, he says, "In trespasses and sins." And then we see in, in verse two, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience." among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Here Paul explains that we were once enslaved by three great enemies. Enemies that cooperated at every point in order to enslave us. Let's consider each of those. The first, Paul says, we were enslaved by the world. We were enslaved by the world. This, of course, refers to... This present evil age, the world as it exists under the influence of the evil one. It's not a reference to the physical world that which God created good, but is now under the bondage of the curse because of sin. Instead, it refers to the ideas, the philosophies, the institutions, and religions that promote godlessness. The course of this world is the way of destruction paid by deception, and it is well-traveled. Paul writes that like the rest of humanity, we were enslaved to this present evil age. We not only followed the course of the world, but we followed the course of the world because we were under the influence of the prince of the power of the air. That's the second great enemy we were enslaved to. We were enslaved by the devil. We were enslaved by the devil. And I I, I get it. I'm. I'm not sure how many people still believe in the devil in this day and age or not... ...but he is a real enemy that influences all who have not been rescued in Christ. We were enslaved by the devil who blinded us to the truth and kept us in bondage. He influenced the way we saw the world, what we believed about what our problem actually was... ...and how we ought to go about fixing that problem. Listen, the devil has done some of the most devastating work though... He's done some of his most devastating work, not in bars or brothels, but in homes and religious institutions. What I mean is, godless homes that reject God, they are just as pleasing to the devil as other things that may pop into your mind. And listen, hear this. The devil doesn't even care if you believe in Jesus Christ. If all you mean by that is, yeah, I believe there was a man named Jesus Christ, and I believe he did and said some things. Hear me, the devil is fine with that all day long. See, he doesn't want you to trust in Christ for your salvation. He doesn't want you to know him as your Lord and Savior. He doesn't want you to wholeheartedly follow him as the only way to the Father. Friends, the devil doesn't even care if you're a good person. In fact, according to Jesus, some of the devil's children are some of the very best people you will ever meet. The devil doesn't mind if you're wise as long as it's according to the wisdom of the world. What the devil disdains is humble, saving faith in Christ alone. And Paul says we were all under his influence at one time. The crook and the counselor, the prostitute and the priest, the dirty delinquent and the pious Puritan. All of us, whether it was addiction, gross depravity, morality or self-righteousness, it doesn't really matter. We were enslaved and we were doing his bidding. Exchanging the glory of God for created things, ignoring the kindness and patience of God, that which was meant to lead us to repentance and seeking to justify our miserable condition with a thin veneer of good works. That's where we were. Or maybe that's where you still are. Paul writes, we were all under the evil one's influence. And if you believe this book to be inspired and inerrant, then you believe he's writing about you. But there's actually more. It gets, I'm sorry to say, even worse. We were enslaved to the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. We see this all around us today. Not just enslaved by the world or the devil, but enslaved by our flesh. We want what isn't ours, and we despise what we have been given. We're driven by passions to satisfy desires that are unholy and destructive. If you have been alive for more than a day, you can relate to that. We were bent in on ourselves in a way that made it made it impossible for us to see what God was offering us in himself. We were like a hunchback that was just stuck looking at his own navel, thinking that this is all there is, and picking the lint out of it to feast upon it. Is that gross? All right. Illustration still works then. Listen, it wasn't just the desires of the body either, it was the desires of the mind. Not just the passions of the flesh, but the mind is darkened, the mind is futile. We were deceived, and so we were. Or, you still are. But it's actually, you guessed it, even worse than that. It was worse than being dead. It was worse than being enslaved to the world and to the devil and to the flesh. The reality is, Paul goes on to say that we were condemned. We were condemned. Look at what he says in verse 3 of our text as he closes that passage. He says, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. It was our nature. That is our natural disposition and condition. We were born sinners under divine wrath. We were born as children of disobedience. We all came from our mother's wombs ready to do the will of the prince of the power of the air. We were condemned through the start. You see, the Bible explains this very clearly, that that Adam was the head of humanity from the beginning, that his sin was actually our sin, that that through him, death entered the world and death went to all men. He was our head. His transgression, his covenant-breaking act of disobeying God's prohibition against eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil was an act of treason that affected every ounce of humanity. So all of Adam's children were born dead to sin, enslaved to sin, and condemned. Now listen, this makes a lot of us squirm in our seats, and I get that. But, but hear me, friends. I'm, I'm just preaching what, what the Bible says, what Paul has written in Ephesians 2. Think about it like this. We were children who built cardboard houses on a train track. And we lived in them as the train was barreling down the track. Not one of us looked up. Not one of us sounded an alarm. Why? Paul says because we were dead. We were blind. We were condemned. We were too busy digging our own graves, piling up the dirt that would soon bury us. We were, according to Paul, elsewhere storing up wrath for ourselves on the day of wrath where God's judgment will be revealed. With every good gift we took from God. Every good gift we used to satisfy the passions of our flesh and refused to give God thanks. Every time we refused to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. The whole time thinking we are very justified for doing it because we're actually not that bad compared to others. And the whole time all we're doing is just making deposits, weekly deposits in God's wrath. <laughs> That's where we were. Or, that's what you still are. Now, you have to be thinking in your mind this is the most depressing Easter sermon I've ever heard, right? Easter is supposed to be a celebration, and it is, friends, but, but this is why I start there. It's because Paul starts there. But you know why Paul starts there? Because he wanted the Ephesians and us to read it. And because the Spirit is at work within us, when we read the Word, we actually know that that's true. We look at our lives and we say, yeah, I can actually see how I was dead. I can actually see how I followed the course of this world. I can see how I was under the influence of the evil one. I can see how I was constantly feeding the passions of my flesh and the futility of my mind. I can see that. And so, of course, I'm under His wrath. If there is a God and He is just, how could I not be under His wrath? So I read that and I say, yes, it's true. Then I read, but God. And all of a sudden, those two words are the most beautiful words I've ever read anywhere ever. I will tell you right now, if you've heard the other things I've said about being dead in your sin, enslaved to the world, the devil, in your flesh, about being condemned, and you think, I don't know about all that. I don't really like that stuff, but I really like that but God part. Friends, you've never heard the but God part. You haven't. Until you understand what you were, you can't possibly understand what God has done. So what has God done? But God what? He made us alive with Christ. Actually raised us with him in Christ's resurrection. We were raised with him in the heavenly places. Now all of a sudden, that is gloriously beautiful. But God saved us. And Paul actually goes on to say when, why, and how right here in the text. We start with when. When did God save us? Look at verse 5. By the way, I want you to know, you know why I keep saying... Look at verse 1, verse 2, and so on, verse 5. Because honestly, if, if any of this is just my opinion, who gives a rip? Right? You didn't come to hear some dude's opinion today. You, you guys can go and do whatever you want if that's the case. But, but if I'm simply saying what the word of God says, then you're not dealing with Cody Page. You're actually being confronted with the very words of God himself. So please look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, even when we were dead. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. That's the when. When did God save us? While we were still dead. See, God did something that we couldn't in order to make us alive. By the way, not, not after we just became a little bit alive... Not after we stopped following the course of this world or freed ourselves from the prince of the power of the air or freed ourselves from being children of disobedience. No, not after any of that. Paul is very clear. He says he saved you when you were dead. When did God save us? In fact, while we were still at enmity with him, dead in our trespasses and sins, disobeying God and obeying the devil, That is when God rescued us, making us alive through Christ. So that's the when. Now verse 4 actually gives us the why. Why did God save us? You will wrestle with this question for the rest of your life if you're a believer. Why would God do such a thing? Paul answered that as well, and he does so in verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy... Ready for the why? Because of his great love with which he loved us. Why did God take dead, enslaved, condemned people who had willfully rebelled against his holy will and rescued him? Rescued them? Why? Because he loved us. And friends, this is is actually real love. It's not the way our culture or Hollywood portrays love. This is is real. This is love that is not provoked by some benefit that God receives from us. This is love that is completely free and unsolicited. Completely free. It, It means he was not provoked from anything on the outside to love us. He did not need something that we had, and his love just grasped on to whatever that perceived need was. No, this is a pure and real love. It is the only such love in all of the universe. God the Father sent his Son because the Father loved us. God the Son came because he loved us. God the Spirit was sent because he loved us. We have come to know God's love for us that we did not earn, could not deserve, and would not work for. In fact, that's the truth. The purity, freeness, beauty, and truth of this love has been most clearly revealed to us through what we celebrate today the life, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul writes elsewhere in a text you're familiar with, I'm sure, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's be honest. If I had a sign-up sheet back there that said, sign up to take a bullet for somebody. I don't think we'd have a whole lot of sign-ups, right? Well, listen, sometimes someone might die for a good person. For someone you love. But how have we come to know the love of God? See, Christ did not die for someone who could earn his love. Christ died for his enemies... He died for those who were at enmity with him, people who hated him, rejected him, refused to show him gratitude, refused to love him, those are whom he sent his son to die for. As John writes in first John chapter four, verse ten, he says, In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Did you see what John says there? It's not that we loved God. Don't misunderstand. This is not a gathering of people that loved God, that were at heart good, southern bell type people, and they loved him a whole lot. They were pretty good with their life, and so therefore he rescued us. No. He loved us first. First. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to satisfy divine justice, the wrath of God that we actually stored up in our sins that was rightly poured out against our sins. And so why save any of us? Well, friends, it's not because you and I are smarter or better looking or stronger or wiser or more kind or patient. The answer to the why question, it is completely external to you. It is the love of God. That's why. When did he save us? While we were still dead. Why did he save us? Because he loved us. How? How did God save us? Paul answers that question as well. How did God save us? By uniting us with Christ through faith by grace. By uniting us with Christ through faith by grace. We see this in verse 5 and verses 7 through 9 as well. Verse 5 By grace you have been saved. And we see in verses 7 through 9. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works lest anyone should boast. Let's break that down a bit. How has God saved us? Let's start by grace. This means it's a gift. Every aspect of it. With absolutely zero room for us to say that we can do anything to remove ourselves from being dead to alive. To being risen with Christ and seated at the right hand in the heavenly places. It is by grace. And that is why Paul wrote, but God and not, but Cody. (laughs) That's actually why he didn't write any of our names here. God did this. Friends, you and I were like Lazarus, dead in the grave when we heard the word of Christ and the Holy Spirit made us alive with him. The Bible says that even faith is a gift. Faith itself is born in our hearts through the hearing and proclamation of the word and the work of the Holy Spirit. If you have been saved today, it's because God made you alive in Christ. You did nothing. You were dead in your sins, enslaved to the world, the devil, and your flesh, rightly condemned for your willful rebellion. But God, but God did something to change everything. How? By grace through faith. That's how it works. The gospel is preached, people hear, they trust that indeed Christ is the Son of God who came, took on flesh so that he might suffer and die in my place, that he lived a perfect, sinless life, and then he suffered a sinner's death in my stead. And when he was raised from the dead, he was vindicated, and I was justified. Praise be to God the Father. He ascended to the right hand where he even now reigns on high. See, faith is the open hands of one who has abandoned any hope apart from the free and infinite grace of Jesus Christ. And for those who have been convicted of their sins, faith is the hope of salvation. For those who have heard of Jesus Christ, of his life, death, and resurrection, saving faith is the conviction that a gospel is true and that Jesus is our great high priest who has offered once for all a sacrifice that for the sins of his people. So through faith, you and I are made partakers of every spiritual blessing in Christ. Okay, how? By grace, through faith, we left something off though. It's very important. It's this, in union with Christ. Don't don't leave that part out. Here is really a a central doctrine to the Christian faith that, that too few really understand. What we mean is by faith, we've been united by faith to Christ so that his life is our life and we are hidden in him. So so when Paul writes that we've been made alive with Christ, that we've been raised with him, that we've been seated with him in the heavenly places... Paul actually means, get this. This is some other great A exposition for you. That we were made alive with Christ. We were raised with Christ. We were seated with Him in the heavenly places. Like, like right now. Like, listen. Like I know I'm here preaching, but what I have is with Christ. And so, if someone walks in here and ends my life right now, guess what? I live. <laughs> By Christ. I am with Christ. And and just think about how this plays out in your life. We are made alive with Christ. You know who that's good news for? That is really stinking good news for someone who used to be dead. We were dead, but Christ died for us so that we might live with him. Calvin once wrote this, meaning Paul, he meaning Paul. He says... He does not mean simply that they were in danger of death. But he declares that it was a real and present death under which they labored. As spiritual death is nothing else than the alienation of the soul from God. We are all born as dead men and we live as dead men until we are made partakers of the life of Christ. Or as Paul put it, even better in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 where he says I have been crucified with Christ so it's no longer I who live united with Christ but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live I live in the flesh I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me so now we have life with Christ but we've also been raised with Christ the fact that we've been raised with Christ you know who that's good news for? That's really stinking good news for people who used to be condemned. <laughs> Follow this closely. Paul says in Romans chapter six verse four, "Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father." That, that's critical. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father." That is, Jesus' resurrection was his vindication for our justification. Jesus lived a sinless life so that the grave could not hold him. His death was his ultimate act of obedience and his resurrection was the vindication of his perfect life and the confirmation of his perfect sacrifice. That's why Paul writes that Jesus in Romans chapter 4 verse 24 was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. That now for those who have been united to Christ by faith, according to Romans 8 verse 1, now there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If if you know that you were once a child of wrath, then you understand what that means. That you were approaching a judgment day that would ultimately have ended with you being separated from everything that is good in this life. Then you being told that is no longer the case. And now there is no condemnation because you were raised with Christ so that you are no longer susceptible to death. You no longer even have to worry about sin because you actually died to the law. When Christ died, you died. When Christ was raised, you were raised. When Christ was to the right hand of the Father, you went with him and seated there with him. That is union with Christ. And it's gloriously beautiful, isn't it? He seated us with Christ. Verse 6 He made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Just, just ponder that for a second. Paul has already wrote to the Ephesians back in chapter 1 these words. He says do not cease to give thanks for you making mention of you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know. Know what? What is the hope of his calling? What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? So we hear that word power and we think, power? Great! That's what I want to work in my life. And Paul says, that's exactly what's at work in your life. It's the very same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Well, well, where did Jesus go? Paul goes on to say in verse 20, which he worked in Christ When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named. Okay, so that's where Christ was seated. He is seated above all principality and power. He's above every name. And Paul writes that in chapter 1. And then what does he say a few verses later in chapter 2? He says, guess what? that's where you are too you used to be enslaved by the devil you used to follow the course of the world you used to be enslaved by the passions of your flesh but now you're actually seated with Christ in the heavenly places so you think man if, if that's the power that I've gotten work in me then we gotta go do some miracles up in this thing right I wanna exercise some power let me get some power going Okay, fine, I agree, amen. We'll get together afterwards, we'll talk through that a little more. But just remember what the power of Christ actually looked like. You know what it looked like? It looked like obedience to the will of the Father. So before you go trying to raise people from the dead and exercise all kinds of miracles, maybe we should just obey. That's the power that's at work in us when we're seated in the heavenly places. He did not open his mouth, Jesus didn't, when he was taken to suffer for our sins. He loved us enough to lay down his life for us. You want to exercise resurrection power? Let's start there. Alright, so, kids are getting antsy. People are wiggling in their seats. And I'm almost done. Welcome to First Baptist Church of Grey Gables. Um, We were dead, enslaved, and condemned. But God made us alive together with Christ, raised up in him. He seated us with him in the heavenly places by grace, through faith. And now we are. What are we? We are. We are his workmanship. That's what we are. We are his workmanship. Do you have any idea what that means? Notice, by the way, Paul uses the plural there. We are his workmanship. Paul's reference here is to the church. In fact, he's going to actually go on and say that in in Ephesians chapter 3, where he says, "...and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places." This is really funny because you kind of get this picture from that verse of these heavenly beings and, and everyone looking at what God has done in the church through Christ, redeeming all these sinners, bringing them together. And all we see is a whole lot of mess, right? <laughs> like the more we know about how much we struggle with sin and our neighbors struggle with sin, we're just like, what a mess this all is. But, but get this, we, we say it's a mess and the heavenly beings are actually looking down and saying, whoa. That's beautiful. God is just and the justifier of sinners. They are in awe because we are His workmanship. All of you have been made alive with Christ, raised with Him, and seated with Him in heavenly places. We are His new creation, friends. That's what Resurrection Sunday is all about. When Christ raised from the dead, that new creation broke into this present evil age. And it has not left. It's actually increased and grown. Everywhere that the gospel is proclaimed, heard, and believed, there is new creation. Not fully, but it is present. And, friends, isn't that beautiful? You want to celebrate this morning? Let's celebrate what he's doing in our midst. Let's celebrate that you and I were once dead, enslaved to the world, the devil, the flesh, condemned under wrath. But God intervened and he made us alive with Christ. He raised us with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that we are actually his workmanship now. The head is in heaven, but the feet, the legs, and the rest of us are down here and we are united with him. And all that is his is ours. That's beautiful. It's a wonderful reason to celebrate. So it's time for chocolate bunnies and Easter eggs. How that relates, I'm not sure, but I'll be doing them too. But hear me. Friends, we go back to our opening illustration. It's not good news if Jesus is in the boat and he throws me a rope. You know why? Cuz I didn't want a rope. Had no interest in a rope. I was dead at the bottom of the water with the moss completely surrounding my face. But Jesus dove in and he took my place and then he took me, breathed life into me and brought me into the boat. He gave me life when I had chosen death. He set me free when I was gladly enslaved. He took away God's wrath and the condemnation I rightly deserved when I was busy storing it up for myself. Happy Resurrection Day. Would you stand as we close this morning? Gracious Father, we thank you for the life, death, and resurrection of your Son Jesus Christ. We are in awe as we consider who we were of what you've done to make us your workmanship. Father, as as Paul goes on to write, a temple where your very spirit dwells. What a glorious thought that is. Father, would you help us to continue to celebrate your son? to exalt Him in our sight the rest of this day and the rest of all of our days, to help us to proclaim continually the gospel to one another, another to encourage one another, to edify one another, to where we are all built up into the head, our Savior and Lord, Your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we are going to sing a hymn of reflection where we ponder the words that, that You have just given to us through Your Word. And Father, then we're going to come to the time of our invitation, where the gospel is going to present it again Where sinners will be encouraged to repent. And be made into that new creation. That which we celebrate the inauguration of today. Father we ask that even now as we dwell on these words. That you would work in the hearts of those who are here who do not believe. Father that they would see themselves. As the Bible portrays them as dead and enslaved and condemned. But they would hear some of the two most beautiful words in the scriptures. But God. And they would see clearly what Jesus Christ did in fulfilling all righteousness and dying in their stead and paying the penalty their sins rightly deserved and then Lord in raising them up with him seating them with the heavenly, in the heavenly places with Christ Father we, we urge your spirit to work this morning we work mightily in the hearts of Lord the believers and unbelievers so that you would be presented with all glory because you're worthy Thank you that you're alive and you're actively working. We rest and trust in that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.